All right, this is simply part two of uh, last week's message uh, when we were looking at a message called uh, Spare the Rod, Spoil the Christian and how God uses discipline in our lives, amen, to make us more like Christ and to help us grow. Just like we discipline children, we're made in the very image of God, amen, and we discipline our children if you have children because we love them. The Bible says that God disciplines us because he loves us. And that no child of God is without discipline. And if there are members in a church uh, who never go without discipline, and they're years and years and years, and they're involved in flagrant sin, they're refusing to repent, and they're like, man, I never get spanked. You know? Because God will even, we've read in the scripture, God will even kill a person to bring him to repentance. Amen? I mean, we saw that in scripture. It's pretty heavy. And if you're without discipline, it says you're not a child. So if you don't get discipline and you're years and years in a church, just because you go to a church doesn't make you a Christian, amen? That old saying, going to, going to a garage doesn't make you a car, right? Going to McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger. Going to the donut shop doesn't make you a police officer, okay? So going to church does not make you a Christian, man. You have to have a relationship with Jesus. And uh, if you're never disciplined and you're in rebellion to God, you're like, man, I'm getting away with it. You're not getting away with anything. You're lost. You need to repent and get right with Jesus and get saved. Amen. And then if you're truly a Christian, a believer, you'll be disciplined by the Lord. Amen. Because he loves you. Right? And he doesn't take away your free will. That's this crazy thing called free will, free moral agency. It is a beautiful gift. Amen. Because we're not robots. God doesn't force us to walk with him. We have to respond. And uh, it's, it's a beautiful gift but we can misuse it. And we need to be thankful for the Lord's discipline. It says, no, discipline is pleasant for the moment while you're being disciplined, but after it's exercised, it brings forth the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Amen? And we saw that the Lord disciplines his children so they won't be condemned with the world, but so they'll be partakers of his righteousness. For the scriptures say, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And that's the context of discipline, that he states that. Then he says, see to it that no bitter, root of bitterness springs up in you, whereby which will defile many, and you fail the grace of God. And don't become like Esau, who he only had tears. He only had tears of regret because he got caught in his sin, and he didn't have tears of repentance. Godly sorrow, the Bible says. Worldly sorrow leads to death. If you have worldly sorrow as a kid that gets caught getting the cookie out of the cookie jar and he's upset, he's crying because he got caught. He wants the cookie. Doesn't care that he hurt his mom's heart. And that's what worldly sorrow is. But godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to life. This is all in 2 Corinthians 7.10. And godly sorrow is when you're hurt because you broke God's heart. I was talking to a brother recently and he said he had to discipline his kid. And, and he said for the first time in his life, he saw his child crying uh, and I don't think it was after discipline. I, he was a kid was just crying separate from being disciplined uh, because he was hurt that he sinned and he blew it and he broke his dad's heart. And it was precious in his father's heart, you know. This was just a few days ago, brother, sharing with me. That's the first time I saw him actually cry because he was upset with himself and what he had done. That's a beautiful thing. God wants that. He wants us to love him, be thankful for the life and and care about him and, and love him to the degree that we obey him and that if we fall short we hurt because we grieved his heart because he's blessed us and he loves us so much and how could we do such a thing against him amen so discipline is huge 
uh, in the Christian life. It's a normal part of Christian life, something that we ought to be talking about, amen, and, and know about and understand. And we went to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, last week. I don't know if we actually read the text, but we looked at the man who was having sexual relations with his stepmother. Now, it may have been his natural mother, which makes, either way, it's gross, but, but he said he's having sex with his father's wife. And that might have been Paul's way of, you know, not being so blatant. But it could mean that it was his father's wife, meaning his second mother. We don't know for sure, actually. And Paul says, you don't even see the sin among the Gentiles at that time. Today, it's like, you see all kinds of wicked things. And Paul said to hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that a spirit may be saved in the day of salvation. Some people say, you know, those who turn grace into a license, you know, uh, teach that he was handed over to Satan so his flesh would be destroyed and he'd go to heaven as an unrepentant fornicator, you know. And that's not what the scripture is teaching there. In fact, most commentators disagree with that, you know. Even Reformed Calvinistic commentators usually don't agree with that. It's about bringing him to repentance, but those who teach a greasy form of grace say, oh, no, it's, you know, just, you know, just kill him and bring him to heaven, you know. No, because a few verses later in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, it says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Fornicators and adulterers, homosexuals and so forth will not inherit God's kingdom. So if we believe that, we've been deceived. But we see what was going on there. He says, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of destruction. And guess what? He repented. Second Corinthians chapter 2, we read that Paul talks about uh, how they need to forgive this man. Most commentators believe because it leaves him unnamed, which I think is really sweet of Paul. You know, guys repented. Well, now forgive Frank. So Frank's name is in there for, you know, you know. And there are some names that are there still, right? But the Lord had mercy on this guy. And his, don't say, how does he know his name is Frank? I'm just use an example. And he says to do three things regarding this man. And these are important for us by way of application for own Christian walks. He says to forgive him. Because see, there was a very liberal wing in the church that was allowing him to continue to stay even though he wasn't going to enter the kingdom of God. And he was being paraded there as an object of a trophy of grace. Look, this guy's having relations with his stepmom or his mom. And look, grace is such that we can sin and and, and like the devil and still enter the kingdom of God. And wow, and that's not, the grace of God is a teacher. Paul says the grace of God instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, right? And to live soberly in this world as we look forward to the blessed hope of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. True grace instructs us, it says, to live godly lives. It doesn't instruct us as a license. In Jude, verse, chapter 1, verse 3, he says to earnestly contend for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Verse 4, for certain men have crept in or slipped in unaware. We're turning the grace of our God into a license for immorality. That's heavy. And it says denying the only sovereign, the Lord, and the Lord. They're denying the Lord. You can deny him by your behavior. Titus chapter 1, verse 16. They profess to know him, but by their works they deny him. You don't just deny him. You can't just, it's not just denying him verbally. Oh, I don't know the man like Peter did. But you could deny him with your behavior. They profess to know him, but by their works they deny him. And it talks about all of their works are an abomination and so forth. And 
this man was denying the Lord and they're presenting him as a trophy of grace. And Paul said they should be enacting church discipline and they weren't doing it. And Paul says, I've already judged. My spirit's there, man. Out. A little bit of leaven. Leaven's a whole lump. It's going to ruin your whole church. A little bit of leaven, a little bit of yeast, cause a whole lump of dough to be affected, right? Well, a little bit of leaven, if you allow somebody to be in rebellion to God in a fellowship, you're going to destroy that church. And a lot of people, that happens all over the place. Place. You have giant churches where they don't practice church discipline, but the churches are destroyed from within because people aren't repentant. Because the pastor won't mention the word sin often or repentance, like Joel Osteen. Biggest church in the nation, I think. Won't use the word sin, repentance. Because the Bible says, man, in the last days, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, many people will gather themselves teachers that will tickle their ears and tell them what they want to hear. That's not true Christianity, folks. That's when you have your own church. It's not Jesus' church. Because you're running it and it's not, you're not yielding it to him and saying, Lord, your will be done with us. Amen? It's not healthy. It's not beautiful. It's, there's not true salvation there. I'm not saying nobody's saved in such churches. But if they're saved, they're either trying to reach people there or they're on their way out. And those types of churches. And praise God, there's a remnant. There's churches, I believe, it, would, it might be, seem like an exaggeration, but hopefully thousands in our country and around the world. Uh, we know that there's, there's going to be a remnant that gets hell will not prevail against his church. Amen. So we need to teach what the Lord says. But he said to do three things for this, this man because you had that, that liberal wing, right? That was just allowing sin to run amok. And you had that liberal wing in that church. Some were denying the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, in that church. All kinds of things were going on. Now, Paul says do three things because now he, the brother comes back, he's repentant. Now, what if that brother walked through those doors? What would you do? And he, and he repented. He was heartbroken over what he'd done. He, he was shamed and everything. What would you do? Well, you might, part of you might be self-righteous. can't believe that's that guy that did that. He's back, honey. Look at him, check him out. He thinks God's going to forgive him after all that. Yeah, God would forgive him if he repented. Did he die for his, all of his sins, yes or no? Yes, he did. He's a God of amazing grace. He paid for his sins. 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light, as he's light. We have fellowship one with another. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, homo lageo, say the same thing about our sin that God does, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it says to do three things. He says to forgive him. Okay? And Paul sets the example. He goes, I forgave if there was anything to forgive. Like, you know what? Is it even personally against you? Number, so sometimes people act like it's personally against them, but still you'd forgive them. Number two, he says to com con uh, confirm your love toward him. And I'm retracing some things that I mentioned last week before I get into a lot of the newer material I want to mention to you because there's more I wanted to say about those things. And I want to make sure we have hearts when people go through church discipline and that, and that was a form of severe church discipline. He was handed over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. That could have been a venereal disease. Or just God to get him to let go of his flesh. So the man would relinquish walking in the flesh. There's different ways that uh, scholars understand that. And it's hard to be absolutely sure. But there's something going on radically there where he was relinquishing his 
living after the flesh. Because Paul said, brethren, we're not debtors to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify, crucify the deeds of the body, you shall live. So he came back and he says to forgive him, to not only confirm your love to him, that means let him know you love him, that you care for him. Go and that would, could mean something as simple as a greeting, just giving the guy a hug, you know. I'm glad you're back, man. And then it says, number three, comfort him. Now, that's called, we're all believers. We're all ministers of the gospel. Everyone here is a Christian. And we always think, we often think we're ministers of the gospel in the context of ministers of reconciliation, reaching the lost. That's how Paul mentions it in 2 Corinthians 5. But we're also ministers of the gospel in Ephesians chapter 4, and we're supposed to build one another up in the body. So we have a, we have a lot of ministry you've been called to. If you're sitting around wondering, what's my ministry? Well, you'll never get the ministry God already has for you done. There's <laughs> always more ministry to do. And so you actively should be comforting someone who is repentant. I'm not saying every last person, but if, we're all, if we all have a mindset like that, we're all going to be able to minister to each other, amen, and one another when people are, you know, reclaimed for the Lord. So forgive, confirm your love to him, comfort him. So I love how the Lord works. So, and I love that because guess what? What happens to a child when you discipline them? After the child's repented, or you, you, know, you, you maybe gave the kid a few swats on the rear end, and, you know, and they're, sorry, you know, and what do you do? Really? You need to be more sorry, no. You, 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 you forgive them, right? I forgive you, don't worry, you know? And let them, I, lo- I love you, you know? Then you comfort them, you put your arm around them, or, you know, you bless them in certain ways. That's, we're God's children. And we need to recognize and have more of a familial spirit toward one another. And that's one of the things I love about this fellowship is I just look around and I see a ton of loving people. It's beautiful what the Lord's done in the hearts, but we want to see it grow, amen? And that doesn't mean everybody is where they need to be. Nobody is where we need to be exactly, right? I love Paul when he says to the Thessalonians how they, you know, speaks of their love for one another. And he's, he's praising their love for one another, but he says, still abound more and more in your love for one another. We've never really arrived. That's still our goal is to be perfectly Christ-like. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. You know, uh, love one another as I've loved you. He says that three years into his ministry to the t- disciples. So if we think, oh, we've arrived, we love perfectly. And what are your hearts toward your brothers and sisters, man? They should be full of love. Otherwise, your heart's not right. You've got to repent and get right. Say, Lord, help me love more. What's wrong with me? Instead of sometimes sanctioning your lack of love, you should re- repent of that and realize God wants us to love each other more. <sighs> yes, we're not one of those churches that doesn't bring up conviction and sin. We've got to deal with it, right? Lord, help us. He stretches us, and thank God he's like that. Uh, so it's important that we understand. We looked at uh, 1 Corinthians 11. Not just 1 Corinthians 5, 5, 6, 9, and 10, but 1 Corinthians 11, 30 through 32, where they were getting drunk, some of them. I'm not going to get into details because I did that last week, but what the Lord did is he brought, he said, some of you are sick and some of you are even dying. Some of you even sleep. Why does he do that? So you won't be condemned with the world. Wow. In other words, guess what? Left undisciplined, you'd be condemned with the world because drunkards would not inherit what? The kingdom of God. Those are true statements. So what does he do? He disciplines us. So we'll repent. 
and get right with him. And that's a good thing, amen? Aren't you glad God disciplines you? That fits Hebrews 12 really good. You know, he disciplines us so we partake of his holiness, for without holiness no one will see the Lord. He wants our hearts to be right with him. But the thing is, he doesn't force you to repent. You have to choose. That's very, very important. And then we looked also at 1 Timothy 1, 18, where Paul says, just like the fornicator that was handed over for destruction of his flesh, that he might, that he would, uh, his spirit may be saved in the day of salvation. Speaking of future salvation, the day of the Lord. Paul says to Timothy in verses 18 and 19, to keep a good conscience, you know, and the faith and so forth. And then he says, because there are men like Hymenaeus and Philetus, he says, who I've handed over to Satan, that they would, might learn, that they might learn not to blaspheme. That's serious. These guys were blasphemers by false teaching, twisting God's word. And he hands them over to Satan, that they might learn not to blaspheme. That's heavy. Because the Lord could have just <laughs> struck them dead. And sometimes he does do that. And I Sapphira, bam, just struck that couple dead. They're, you know, because they were just blatant liar, lying to the apostles. So you didn't lie to men, you lied to God. You're lying to the Holy Spirit, you know. Acts chapter 5. And it says when they dropped dead, man, the fear of God came upon the church. Yeah, I guess, right? Whew, that'll straighten you up, right? Well, these guys were handed over to Satan, Hymenus and Philetus. And it says, you can go to 1 Timothy 1, because I alluded to some of these scriptures and we really didn't take a gander at them of any depth because I was covering a lot of scripture. But uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I think there's, it's pretty powerful because it shows you the, the lengths that God will go because of his love for us. In verse 18, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and what? Suffer shipwreck in regard to their faith. So Timothy, this happens. Some have made shipwreck of their faith. You keep the faith. Don't let that happen to you. He's his true son in the faith, and he doesn't want, he wants him to follow. He tells Timothy they left him an example. He doesn't want Timothy to follow the example of these false teachers. Now, it's like, wow, why does he have to warn Timothy of that? Paul beat his own body down, so after he preached the gospel to others, he himself would not be rejected, he said. Then he goes on to say, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. It's Peter who didn't think he could fall, right, and boasted that I'll never deny you. They end up denying the Lord three times. So we can't say this is for somebody else. Oh, yeah, this, I'm glad he's preaching this, man. This sister over here, that brother over there needs that. I'm so glad you preached that message, Joe. You know, it's like, wait a second, guys. We all need this, amen? amen? And Paul's telling Timothy, don't follow that example. They made shipwreck of their faith. It doesn't say they had a fake faith. It says it became shipwrecked. And certainly Timothy's faith is real, Right? And he can become shipwrecked. They don't follow their example. And then verse 20, among these are Hymenaeus, the Greek Humaneos, and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be what? Taught not to blaspheme. Wow. 
Now, these were children of God because guess what? It says if you're not children, you're not what? Disciplined. Disciplines those he loves and chastens them. And I praise God. I love the promises and the warnings because my, the warnings and the spankings show you God's love. When I tell my kids when they're little, don't go out in the street, even to this day, the most you see my love sometimes among my kids and ch- ch- my grandchildren, my son Josiah, I'm like, always like, be careful when you drive. You know, you're driving away. I'm going over here, Dad. Be careful. Be careful, man. Watch out. It's because I love him. And sometimes people look at, you know, mm, oh, God, yeah, I got it, you know. And it's like God loves us. That's why he warns us. And he does it so they'll be taught not to blaspheme. And the fact that they're handed over to Satan's domain shows you that they were out of Satan's domain. Amen. And we're translated when we get saved out of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of his dear son. But guess what? Excommunicated. And now you're in trouble. Repent and you'll get right. Unfortunately, we don't know what happened to Philetus because he's not mentioned. But in 2 Timothy, two years later, Hymenaeus is mentioned. Go to 2 Timothy. About two to three years later, in 2 Timothy, not long before Paul is going to die, uh, we read in verse, well, and this is actually kind of sad, uh, really sad actually, because it talks about avoid, verse 16, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene among them. He's talking about false teachers. I'm sorry. We know, what, we know Philetus is first mentioned here. I got him confused with Alexander, uh, who's mentioned in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy, Hymenaeus is mentioned, and uh, another man is mentioned, okay? But guess who's not mentioned in the second one, okay? For verse 20 of chapter, of chapter 1, among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan so that they might be taught not to blaspheme. So uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander are both mentioned, I'm sorry, Philetus are both mentioned there. But then when you read verse 17, their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that what? The resurrection has already taken place and they upset the faith of some. They're denying the resurrection of Christ. That's serious. If you don't believe in Christ's resurrection, you can't be saved if you reject his resurrection. That's part of the gospel. Paul says, I declare unto you the gospel by which you are being saved if you hold fast that which I delivered to you and, uh, unless you have believed to no effect or in vain. There's Paul, times where Paul said his preaching, he didn't want it to be in vain, you better endure. You know, it didn't mean his preaching wasn't right, but it, mean, it might have been to no purpose in the end. And Paul states directly uh, that then he declares what the gospel is, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried and rose again according to the scriptures. If you believe a different gospel, you can't be saved. These guys are denying the resurrection of Christ. And guess what? It says that they're, what are they doing? What, what is their teaching doing? What kind of effect is it happening, having on others? And their talk will spread like gangrene or cancer in some translations. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, verse 17. Men who, gave, men who have gone astray from the truth. We saw that with Hymenaeus in 1 Timothy saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they upset the faith of some. These were false teachers now and now they're affecting uh, other people and trying to bring them along with them in their uh, shipwreck, their faith. That's serious stuff. That's serious stuff. Now, we might think, okay, wow. That fornicator repented, right? There's no sign that these guys repented. 
It's not in the scripture. Although, guess what? There is a sign that God still didn't give up three years later on them. In fact, if you go to verse 24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. If you're going to serve the Lord, you're not supposed to be one who likes to just argue with everybody, you know? Uh, Verse uh, 25, with gentleness, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 26, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. Remember, they'd given in to Satan's temptations. They were handed over to Satan. Now, if they may escape the, the, the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. These guys were servants of Satan now instead of Jesus. That's serious stuff. And hopefully God will give them opportunity to reach these guys and bring them to repentance. So far, it hadn't happened. Whether they came and repented at at the end or not, we don't know. just leaves it open. So, brothers and sisters, God disciplines us. And it's super serious that we respond to his discipline. In Hebrews chapter 3, it talks about, or chapter 12, it talks about his discipline. But in chapter 3, it talks about not tuning him out. Not tuning out his voice. Hebrews chapter 3. Verse 1. We're just going to look at a few verses here. Therefore, holy brethren, are you one of the holy brethren? Do you know Jesus? Praise God. Partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. The main key in your Christian walk is to look to Jesus. Amen. And then what happens is he warns them about not tuning out the Holy Spirit. Because God convicts us of sin. Remember, he doesn't condone sin. Right? But he doesn't want to condemn you either. So what does he do? Doesn't condone. Doesn't want to condemn. Therefore, what? He seeks to correct. Amen? He seeks to correct us. Chapter 3, verse 6. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, verse 7, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not what? Harden your hearts as when they provoked me and in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw the works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they also always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. And I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take care, verse 12, my brethren or brethren, that there be no one in any, there be, check this out, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that what? Falls away from the living God. So it's interesting. He's checking them right now. They hadn't fallen away yet. They're being tested. They're holy brethren. They have a relationship with the living God. But they're being tested by the trials that are around them. And according, when you look at the background of the book of Hebrews, it's pretty heavy because there's heavy persecution going on. Some of them had lost their homes after they'd been enlightened, he says, but they're to rejoice because they have treasure in heaven. Okay, they're babes in Christ, Hebrews chapter 5. They need to grow to maturity. Okay, they're visiting the prisoners who were imprisoned because of the gospel. God will bless them because of their, of their God will reward them for being a blessing to the other saints, Hebrews 6.10. They, they, they have growth that they've experienced, but some of them are in the habit of not being in fellowship anymore. He says, not to forsake the assembly of yourselves together as the habit of some. 
and on the verge of apostasy. Some of them had already committed apostasy, according to Hebrews 6. They had fallen away after receiving the Holy Spirit, it says, and had having all these wonderful experiences. But those he's addressing here, he's saying, don't follow their examples. Their examples. He's constantly putting the Old Testament saints and the leaders of the church as their examples, follow their examples, and ultimately, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of their faith. Amen? Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, uh, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as you still call today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, that's what can happen. You have to make sure your heart's not hardened. God disciplined that fornicator, and his heart was softened, and he repented. God disciplined Hymenaeus, and at least for the first few years, and doesn't, we don't see any repentance anywhere, he got hardened. And you can be sink and hard in you to where you just stiffen your neck. Refuse to repent. Verse 14, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until what? The end. Verse 15, while he said, today if you hear his voice, do not what? Harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Don't harden your heart, guys. Gals, brothers and sisters. We go through life and Satan's constantly trying to make us like that little kid who just sees himself and what he wants and blames everybody else. God wants you to realize we don't even deserve life. He gave us life and then he bought us through his son's precious blood and which was the ultimate sacrifice and his son didn't deserve any of it. We deserved all the punishment. And when we go through things, he wants to realize what a privilege it is to be alive and then to be able to be redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus, amen? And that should soften our hearts. That should cause us to say, wow, I can't believe the Lord loves me like this. That's where we should be. We should be, I can't, I'm so sorry I've sinned against you. I, I, I can't even believe I could do something like that, whatever your sin has been. I deserve hell, and what I've gotten is far less than what I deserve, amen? Because he doesn't want to condemn us. Lamentations 3.33, he doesn't discipline or afflict the sons of men willingly he doesn't want to spank us but he needs to because he's a loving father now in revelation 3 i mentioned that really briefly but i want to turn to it and actually look at it for a minute because that's where you have that same scripture reference quoted from the old testament book of proverbs where it says as many as the lord loves he reproves and disciplines we saw that in Hebrews 12 when we went through verses 1 through 16 last week. But he says this to the church of Laodicea. Verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? The amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. He's the one who started God's creation. He's created everything. It says in John 1, 3. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. Now, that's interesting. They weren't cold or hot. And then he says in verse 16, So because you are lukewarm and neither cold, hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. There's a lot of different interpretations of what that means as far as, because there was a stream of water that went into Laodicea. And Laodicea was one of the richest cities in that area, in Asia Minor. There's seven churches addressed here. And all seven are in Asia Minor. Be, there was a route that you would take and you could go through all seven churches. 
And he uses these churches, I believe, as an example to the other churches, and you can apply them to the church. Some say this church represents this age. Some says this church represents that age. Some, and that gets really arbitrary. It's best to see all seven churches as existing in the first century, because they did. They were churches that really existed, right to the angel of this church. And that all seven churches could represent any church today. Okay? But Laodicea is the last church that he mentions, and it's a very wealthy church. And now John is writing in the 90s, so the church had been around for, you know, 50 years or so after Jesus died and rose. And this church was very affluent because this area was very affluent. But you know what was a real bummer? Is from the city where the water was coming from, where it was nice and cold, by the time it got to Laodicea, the water, it was lukewarm. You know? And hot water is nice because guess what? You can like eat hot springs. Anybody in a hot spring? That could be really good, right? Or you could just bring some coffee. Well, instant coffee, you know? Or if it was cold, mm, there's nothing like cold water. It's one of my favorite drinks by far. There's nothing satisfies like cold water. But this water, what happens with, when you drink lukewarm coffee, for instance? Now, that doesn't work for everybody because my mom, after a message one time, said, I actually like my coffee when it gets lukewarm. <laughs> okay, that's abnormal, though. <laughs> Jesus evidently doesn't like lukewarm coffee, okay? Or lukewarm, okay? So the idea is, and I want, I want you hot and, and not cold. The idea is, hot or cold would signify not being cold toward the Lord, but loving him you know I think that's what's going on there he's like they didn't have the hot or cold water man they'd spit it out you know at times and of course you'd have to drink it you know they didn't have ice typically unless you had a carrier like the Roman some of the Roman Caesars did go all the way you know towards Switzerland <laughs> and bring a bunch of ice back before most would be melted by the time he got back you know but uh the idea there is that I, I would that you were hot or cold but because you're lukewarm he says I'll spit you out on my mouth, verse 16. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So they are like, man, look at us. We must have God's favor. Just like the Jews many times in the Old Testament because they had all these blessings. Man, God must just, we must be right with God even though we're committing all these radical sins and rebellion to God. And, and he's saying, no, that's your outward appearance. God looks at the heart, amen? And they were dire straits. And I don't have time to expound on these verses. We've gone through these at least a uh, few times in two different times through the book of Revelation study. Uh, so I wish I could spend more time here, but I want to get to the main point. And I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and that uh, the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes uh, so that you may see, I wish we had time, those whom I love, I what? Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. It's a church that needs repentance. You know, and, and usually with the churches, he'll say, there's a remnant at least, you know. There's a few in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. You have those there that hate the deeds of Nicolaitans, but even they had left their first love. But here in this case, man, this whole church for the most part was an apostasy. This sounds a lot like the American church, guys, by the way. 
health and wealth gospel and all that junk. It's crazy. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. That's the objective he wants. But look what he says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone what? Hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and he will dine with me. Uh, I will dine with him and he will dine with me. What's happening? The Lord's voice is speaking. He's knocking. And I love this because it shows that how much he cares that if someone falls away, he's still knocking. He's still calling to them to repent. Amen? The hundred sheep that goes astray, he goes after it. Amen? But he's calling this church, can I come back into my own church that I built? It's Jesus built this church. Amen? And he's been kind of just kicked out. Wow. Is the Lord knocking on your heart? Have you closed off? Have you hardened your heart? You're doing your own thing. You're not hearing his voice and you're, you're resisting the Holy Spirit. And, you know, don't do that. Because he says he'll spit you out of his mouth. I preach it right off the page. I don't skip the verses or just claim them away. It doesn't really mean that, you know. No, it's, it's, it's what it is. And it's for our own good. You could be spit out of the body of Christ. Not just the physical church, but we're part of his body. And we could be spit out. And we need to repent. Verse 30, 21. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This isn't just for, that's why I'm saying, all these churches, we need to say, how does this apply to our fellowship? And it applies to Blessed Hope. If you're a lukewarm believer here, you've got to repent. Quit, you know, pushing God away. And notice this. This church is already in a bad state. Some people teach that, oh, once you sin, man, you're just cut off from God. And then you've got to get right with God again. And then you cut off. And then you, no, God's patient. Amen? It's like the unfaithful steward. He was unfaithful steward for some time. And then later on, the Lord cut him in pieces, put him with the unbelievers. But here he's patient. He's a loving, loving God. Amen? And I love it because if you overcome, you'll sit with him on his throne. Even as he overcame, he left the example. And how do you overcome? Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. They overcame him, that is the devil, by the blood of the lamb. The ground of our victory is the gospel, what Jesus did for us on the cross. And the word of their testimony, testimony is, is your confession of Christ as your Lord. In fact, John says in John 1.9 that he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos because of his testimony of, uh, of Jesus, testimony of Jesus Christ. And then he says, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives even to the point of death. It means you hold on to your faith to the end, as Jesus taught. And, but guess what? That doesn't mean there's not times where there's a struggle or a lapse. They need to get back, Amen. But he hasn't yet spit them out of his mouth is my point. Amen? He didn't say, oh, I spit you out. He says, I will spit you out. They have opportunity to repent and get right. And then they will sit with him. Amen? And they'll be overcomers. Now, there's a lot here that we've gone through. And, and my hope and heart is the way the Lord has taught me through the years is I just see the scriptures systematically. You know, I love to hone in, but the way I just, just 
whether I'm seeking him in prayer or I'm going on a hike or whatever, and I'm seeking him, the scriptures just tie together. And he wants the scriptures to tie together for us. He wants us to see how this whole thing works. Amen? He wants us to rightfully divide the word of truth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things, and then applying them to our lives. We have to, we cannot tune out the Lord. The Lord convicts us first. Amen? And don't be Hymenaeus, man. Don't be Hymenaeus. And we looked at King Asa. Remember King Asa? Asa, 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 Asa. And that's really how it's pronounced, Asa. We looked at King Asa, and he, uh, he was doing really good, right? And he loved the Lord. It says he served him with all of his heart, you know, that he walked in his ways, tore down all the idols. And I won't go through the whole story, but to say this, then his heart got hard. After 20 years of prosperity, sin got into his life, and we don't know exactly what led to it. I said before, I think that's good that we're not told in some cases, because then we could say, it could be anything. We know with David exactly what it was. But with him, no. We just know that a prophet came to him and said, the Lord is with you while you're with him, and if you seek him, he'll be found of you. But if you forsake him, he'll forsake you. And then, guess what? He forsakes the Lord. Then a prophet comes to him and tells him again, reiterates what the other prophet said to a degree, and tells him, you know, you need to repent. He throws that prophet in prison. Remember that? Woo! And then he oppresses the people. Then God bring, takes his peace away because his peace had kingdom. His, his kingdom had peace. And the Lord says to him, well, he says, we cried out to the Lord before that, and the Lord gave us peace. So he knew the peace came from the Lord. Now he's not seeking the Lord, and instead he made an, a covenant with, or an agreement with, an alliance with the king of Syria, and took money, stole money from the temple to bribe him. I was like, wicked. And then guess what happens? He imprisons the prophet. Then there's wars that come upon his kingdom. Wars, no peace. Still doesn't repent. Then it says the Lord, it says the Lord gave him a severe foot disease. Severe. Wow. And it says he still didn't repent. He still says did not seek the Lord. He used the doctors. Nothing wrong with using doctors as long as they're not using some new age, you know, spiritualism, right? But it says he didn't seek the Lord. He didn't cry out to the Lord at all. When you're going through spiritual or physical, whatever you're going through, you always need to seek the Lord first. Amen. And then it says right after that, he died. And I didn't want to end on him last week. But I thought, oh, it'll give me time to go back and look at King David and spend a little more time this week. Because David is a man who did respond. He was a man, the scriptures say, that was a man after God's own heart. And he was a giant killer, you know. He was the sweet psalmist who wrote a lot of the book of Psalms. He loved the Lord. But he became prosperous in his kingdom. Don't give me too much or I forget you, Lord. He had a lot. And he forgot the Lord to a degree. And then remember when it happened in the spring when kings go out to battle. Springs don't like to go out to battle in the dead of winter. You know, snow, too cold, you know, hard to get the morale of the troops up. They'll leave my warm fireplace to go to war. Unless they're real warmongers, it's hard to, well, when kings go to war, David did not put his armor on. Instead, remember, he was kicking back on his roof, and he was, all of a sudden, he's checking out Bathsheba, which may not have been the first time he was checking her out. 
But now her husband was gone, King Uriah. We don't know. We don't know. It doesn't say whether that happened a few times or what. But my, I, when I think of that, I think, ooh, that, this guy might have been dabbling right before that. Or, you know, it's the first time she bathed there. Some blame her. Well, she's bathing right where the king can see her. It doesn't say that, that she did it purposely, although it's kind of strange. Though. Don't know, though, for sure what was going on in her heart. I know that she, uh, what was going on in his heart, though, to a degree, because he was fixed on her, brought her up to his cat, had her brought up to his, his uh, castle, so to speak, slept with her, conceived a baby, uh-oh, tried to hide it, tried to bring, he brought King Uriah back. And he wanted to go sleep with your wife, you know, go, you know, hang out. So it looked like it was his baby. Even though they're still at war, brings him back. Uriah's like, why is the king bringing me back? But he's such an honorable man, which makes it even so sad, much sadder. He's like, I'm not going to go be with my wife when everybody, my, my countrymen are out serving the king and at war, trying to get a victory. So David gets him drunk. The Bible says, woe to the one who gets his neighbor drunk to see his nakedness. Well, in this case, it was to cover up his adultery. And he's like, drank too much. He's like, whoa. And he still withstands. I mean, at that point, I don't know if you've ever been drunk before you're a believer. Hopefully not after you're a believer. If you have, if you have any, hopefully you repented, you know. But you give in to things that you don't give in to normally. Okay? I remember I quit smoking a few times as a non-believer, but every time I get drunk right after I quit smoking, I might be doing good for a few days. It's like, give me a cigarette, you know. You just give in. He's trying to get him to give in and just go be with his wife, which wouldn't even have been a sin to go be with his wife, right? He still camps out in front of David's home, which is like just a reminder, you are a wicked, worthless guy at this point, you know. David, look what you've done. Then David has him sent to the front lines and killed. Kills him indirectly, but vicariously, he kills him. He committed murder. Now his hands are full of blood. The one sin was horrific. Now it's another sin, which is even as or more horrific. Murder, you're taking someone's life. Now, David goes quite a while, you know, almost a year before he repents. We don't know exactly how long, but it was almost a year. And go to 2 Samuel chapter 12, because it's interesting how the Lord brought him to repentance. And it's how, remember how the Lord says, come, let us reason together. The Lord reasons with us. Because how many of you discipline your child and you have to reason with them? Don't you understand why I did this? You know? Anybody else been there? You know? Don't you understand why I had to do this? And don't you understand what you did and how bad it was? And we don't have a right conception of sin. We don't realize how bad our sin really is. You don't understand how bad your sin is until you recognize how holy your God is. Amen? That's why it's important to emphasize the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy art thou, you know, Lord God Almighty, perfectly holy. He dwells in unapproachable light. He's greater than the entire universe he made because cause and effect, right? You have to, the cause has to be greater than the effect. Create the entire universe. And the Bible says he's a consuming fire. That nobody, it says who can dwell in the everlasting fire? Who? How could you? You can't unless you're totally cleansed of your sins, amen, and have a... A, a communion with him. Amen? Yet Jesus invites people to be in the very throne of the Father with him. Wow. But the, the, the seraphim with these six wings that are whoo, flying whoo, whoo, in Isaiah chapter 6, they're just like flying, right? 
And with two wings, they're covering their feet. With two wings, they're covering their, their faces. And, these, and they're greater than us. It says the angels are greater than us. And this, the angels are greater than us, but the cherubim are ranking angels that are higher than the other angels. So they're like really high. And they're very high, much higher than us, but they're God's very presence. And they're hiding their face and their feet. And they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The train of his temple fills the earth, right? And you know what? You know what? I've told you before. You know what seraph means? Burning ones. They're like glowing with fire. Why are they glowing with fire? Do you think it came from themselves? No, they're in God's presence and he is a consuming fire. Think about that, guys. I mean, to me, if I'm learning that kind of stuff, that gets my attention. If I'm thinking about those things, you, you really ought to think about that. It should stop you in your tracks. Wow. He's that holy. Amen. And then you sin and rebel against his kingdom. And you disregard and disobey his laws of love. Now, if you only have a conception of God as a consuming fire, you're just going to be like, whoa. But guess what? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen who? The Father. Okay, he's not an impersonal being like the sun is in a being, but it's, not, it's impersonal, right? It's not like he's just this mass burning. No, it's just that's his power, you know, his essence. He dwells in unapproachable light and who he is, but he's also a God of love. God is love, 1 John 4, 4, or 4, 8, 1 John 4, 16 as well. So God is a radically holy God, and we need to fear, work out our salvation, it says, with fear and trembling, now, in 2 Samuel, David's gone some time. He's the king. Nathan is the prophet in the king's court. And he takes his bony finger, points at David. Well, I don't know. How do you know his finger was bony? Aren't all fingers bony? You know? Now, I don't know if he pointed at David, but he just tells David this. Verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said, There were two men in a city. The one wealthy... The other poor. Which one do you think represents David? The wealthy one, man. Which one, who does the poor guy represent, do you think? Uriah, that's right. The wealthy man had a great many flocks and herds. Unfortunately, David took many wives to himself. But the poor man had nothing at all except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nurtured, and it grew up together with him and his children. It was like a pet. It would eat scraps from him and drink from his cup and lie in his lap. Wow. It was like a daughter to him. Wow. Now a visitor came to the wealthy man and could not bring himself to take the animal from his flock or his own herd to prepare the traveler for, uh, who had come to him. So, so the wealthy man, what does he do? So he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. He's rich. He's got all these little lambs. He can eat them in any of them. Have some lamb chops, rack of lamb, whatever. And instead, he takes this guy's one little pet lamb. It's like a daughter to him. He butchers it, kills it, butchers it, serves it. Verse 5, Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, this man who has done this certainly deserves to die. He doesn't understand it's a parable. Doesn't understand he's talking about David, you're the guy, right? Uriah's the guy that you ripped off. And then, well, 
you took his little lamb, Bathsheba. Look at what David says. He deserves to die. So he must make restitution for the lamb four times over. Since he did this thing and had no compassion. I love that. He had no compassion. That's what sin is, guys. When you sin against the Lord and you sin against others, that's a lack of compassion. But we got to own it. That's a lack of love. The Bible says love fulfills the law. Amen. That's why I emphasize growing in love, praying God help me to be more loving. The more you love him, he said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Amen. He said, abide in my love. Continue in my love. We need to just continue to grow in his love. David, you know, he wants this guy to die, to pay back four times and to die. You know what's interesting about this though? If you stole your neighbor's lamb, it wasn't the death penalty. But you did have to pay back fourfold. There was a fourfold restitution. In fact, which I think is interesting because in the context, David's a rich man, right? But in Exodus chapter 22, verse 1, God demanded a fourfold restitution. That's in Exodus 22, verse 1. It's supposed to pay back fourfold. Not death, okay? Restitution. Penalty was restitution fourfold, not death. Not just one lamb, but four because of the trouble you put the guy to. You've got to give him four back, you know? And maybe to learn a lesson too. Don't do that. I'm sure that was part of it as well. However, guess what? If you committed adultery or murder in the Mosaic law, was it fourfold restitution? Was that the law? No, the law was what? Death. Think of what's going on here. David deserves to die. The Lord hasn't killed him yet. And he won't, because you'll see, obviously, you know what happened there. But he did, he, did, he, did what the guy do with that guy's lamb? Was that worse than what David did? Or was what David did worse? What David did was worse. He killed a human being. Amen. And he committed adultery. Yet David, in a fit of rage, is like so ticked off. Can't believe this guy was so, you know, lacked so much compassion that he went and did this to this, this poor guy. Took his lamb, butchered it, and ate it. It's like, David's like, what a wicked man. You know? He'd be killed and pay back fourfold. David knew the law. But David, wait a minute. <laughs> that doesn't call for the death penalty. What you did does call for the death penalty, and you are somehow not repentant, making excuses. And then it's interesting. Look at verse 7. Chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 7. Nathan then said to David, you yourself are the man. I like the King James there. Thou art the man. David's like, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. It is I who anointed you as king of it over Israel. And it is I who rescued you from the hand of Saul. And I like that because the Lord is letting him know, don't you know anything that you have has come, come from me? And sometimes we can justify our sins forgetting that everything comes from Jesus. The Bible says, what do you have that you have not received? Amen. I love that verse. I like to remember that verse. Anything I have is from you, Lord anything. The only thing I own in my life that I take credit for and say, Lord, you had nothing to do with this. This is all mine. Is my sin. That's what I own. And I'm ashamed of my sin and falling short of God's glory. And we all should be. Amen? That's what we can own. Well, I did this and this and this. And the Lord says, when the master goes in and the servant, you know, doesn't seat himself first or ask for a thank you basically he, he serves his master he doesn't say look what I've done he says I've done my duty anything you did was what you ought to have done anyway God created you to do what's right 
We don't deserve a, a slap on the back, you know, honestly. I mean, God still blesses us, rewards us. That's really, I look at his rewards as grace, by the way, you know, because our duty is to do good. So when we do what's good, we've only done his will. And then he just is so good to us. But David here fell in this stupor, and that's what sin does. You can, you can get a hard heart, right? You can start to make excuses. You can whatever, you know. And the Lord says to David, you know, I would have given you so much more if you would have asked. You had everything. He talks about, you know, how much he gave him and stuff. And it's interesting because David does repent. Look at uh, chapter 12, verse 13, the first part of verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And in Psalm 51, 4, against you, you alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Doesn't mean his sin didn't affect Uriah. <laughs> and didn't affect Bathsheba. And didn't affect others. It did, absolutely. But as far as it's not their law that he broke, Okay. It's God's law that he broke, amen? He sinned against God's moral law. But so don't use that to say, oh yeah, well, I've only sinned against you. I didn't really, no, he hurt a lot of people, amen? And that's why God's given, one of the reasons he's given his moral law, to reflect his holiness, his, who he is, but also so that we understand how to love one another. Now look at verses nine and following in 2 Samuel 12. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? Wow, David loved the word of the Lord. That must just crush his heart, but he was despising it. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? When you're in sin, you start not to really, you know, and you're holding on to it, you don't want to turn, you start to go like that. You, you, you get away from your word, you know? If you're in the word, it'll keep you from sin. If you're in sin, it'll keep you from the word. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? By doing evil in his sight. You have struck and killed Uriah, the Hittite, with the sword. You have taken his wife as your wife, and you have slaughtered him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. So David was guilty of murder and adultery. Now then, the sword shall never leave your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. Wow. Even though he's going to be forgiven here, there's still consequences to his sin. You can live a licentious, lascivious lifestyle before you're saved and live, you know, just live a wicked life and sleep around and stuff and get saved and be forgiven of all you're sleeping around. But guess what? That doesn't mean the gonorrhea, the syphilis, the herpes, the AIDS goes away right away or at all until, the, until you die. Because the Bible says to us, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 9. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. He that sows the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But he that sows the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And we shall reap if we continue, right? And don't grow weary. So that, that same principle is active in our lives as Christians. We do harmful things. We, it's like sowing seeds. You, get, you sow tomato seeds, you get tomato plants, right? You, you, you sow consequences to your life because there's, there's certain spiritual laws just like there's physical laws. Now, God can erase some of the consequences, but he tends to leave certain consequences too to teach us. And look at what he says here. It's kind of interesting. Verse 11 this is what the Lord says. Behold, I am going to raise up evil against you from your own household. <gasps> wow. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. Well, his own son who's going to rebel. It's not like the Lord says, hey, have his wives. But he uses Absalom's rebellion and Absalom's going to become like his dad and he's going to sleep with his wives. Verse 12, indeed, you did, secret, you did it secretly, 
but I will do this thing before all Israel. And it opened daylight. Now, by the way, why in the world is the Lord making this so dramatic in open daylight? Some of you may say, man, I blew it. I can't believe I blew it, you know? And he's going to make this known to everybody. Well, guess what? You know, the Lord says, you know, it's to a man's glory to overlook a fault. He doesn't want us to be like Ham, who exposed his dad's nakedness. Love covers a multitude of sins, amen? And the Lord does want to bring repentance. Even David, or even Joseph, being a righteous man, when he thought that Mary had committed adultery, he was going to put her away privately so her sin would be exposed. So God typically, he, you know, but then there's other things where it's like, no, he wants the sins to be seen. Like it says, those elders who continue to sin, rebuke them before all. Why? Because they're continuing in rebellion. They're not repenting. What happens here? David, he says to David, you've caused the nations to blaspheme because God was showing that he was the holy God. He was the one true God. And now King David, who is the man after God's own heart, is flaunting grace and living a wicked life. And God's like, I got to make this right. I want to make sure that people see that that's not the way of the Lord. Then, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also allowed your sins to pass. You shall not die. So guess what? The de- he should have died. The death penalty, adultery, murder, death penalty. But he doesn't, mur- he doesn't kill him. He forgives him. But there's still consequences. So God sometimes uses things to discipline us. So we'll turn from sin. But even if we turn from sin, sometimes there's still consequences built in to the fabric of the way that God ministers to us to teach not only us lessons, but to teach others, less, others lessons as well. Verse 14, however, since this deed you have, sh- uh, however, since by this deed you have shown utter disrespect to the Lord, the child himself who is born to you shall certainly die. Then Nathan went to his house. Oh, that's heartbreaking, you know? Now the child's going to die. And it's interesting because there was a fourfold consequence for taking somebody else's lamb, right? Guess what? There's a fourfold consequence in David's life. Four of his children die. First, you have the child that Bathsheba has growing in her, the woman he took in adultery. His wife now, she, that, that child ends up dying. That's in 2 Samuel chapter two, 12, verse 18. Then you have Ammon. He rapes his sister, Tamar, David's daughter, and Ammon's his other son. And Ammon rapes her. And then guess what? It says that his son Absalom didn't do anything about it. Older son. He didn't, do, he didn't say anything good or evil. That's what it says. Doesn't mean that he was forgiving and so forth. He was simmering. Because then later, guess what? He ends up killing Ammon. So he loses the child from Bathsheba. He loses his son, Ammon, at the hands of Absalom. Then guess what Absalom does? He has disrespected his father because of his sin. And he ends up having an insurrection against him, takes his wife, sleeps with him on the roof before all Israel to just defile, to just defraud David, you know, and just humiliate him. Tries to take his kingdom. And he's killed by Joab. That's his third son. So he loses the child from Bathsheba. He loses 
Ammon, he loses Absalom, which is interesting. And then Adonijah in 1 Kings 2.25, he plotted to usurp the throne of Solomon. Because Solomon, by the way, was born from Bathsheba, and he thought he had the right for the throne, perhaps, and he didn't invite Solomon, you know, and that wasn't, he wasn't God's choice. And Well, we read in 1 Kings 2.25, then King Solomon sent the order to, uh, by Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him so that he died. So he lost Adonijah, he lost Absalom, he lost Ammon, and he also lost his child from Bathsheba, four. And his life was spared, you know. And we do know, you know, that his youngest that was killed or died because through Bathsheba, that he said when, that he said he knew he'd go and be with him in the future. So it wasn't that that child didn't have a future. We don't know exactly what happened with each and every one of the children, where their hearts were at the end. We get a good glimpse of Absalom, you know, and uh, at least one of the others for sure. So it's interesting. David's being disciplined radically. This happened through the course of the rest of his life. What does that mean? It means sometimes things that go on in our lives are disciplinary measures for God to keep us humble. Sometimes there are consequences to things that we've done. Sometimes they have nothing to do with our sin at all, like Job. That's why it's, it's good not to always try to, does this happen because of this? Does this happen because of that? You know, it's good to say, Lord, Whatever reason, if I don't know why something happened in my life, I'm going to love you and respond to you in love because you're good. But thank you for whatever you allow in my life to get my attention to make sure I realize you're God, I'm not, and you deserve all the glory and help me live for you. Amen? Now, it's interesting because David responded really well to the discipline eventually. In 2 Samuel, you might want to turn there, chapter 15, verses 25 and 26. And the, and the king said to Zadok, return the ark of God to the city. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back to show me both uh, it and his habitation. So David's like, whatever God has to show me, if he wants to show me favor, great. But look at verse 26. But if he says this, I have no delight in you. The Lord says that to me. Then here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. That's humility. He's saying, you know what, Lord? I've blown it. And we've all blown it, amen? In life, in different ways. He's saying, Lord, have your way with me, amen? And I love what he says there. Uh, Let him do to me as seems good to him. You want God to do to you as seems good to him because he has infinite wisdom. He knows exactly what's good for you, amen? And, what's, and I love this because he says what's good to him. God always does what's good to him. Sometimes He'll go through pain, but it'll be for a higher good. And if you love him, he works all things together for the good, for those who love him and the call according to his purpose. If you love him as David is doing that, David realized the best course of action now is to humble myself and seek him. Now look at 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 5 through 14. Something very interesting happens. David goes through discipline in some very interesting ways. When King David came to Bahurim, behold, a man was coming out from there from the family of the house of Saul. So this guy's coming out from the family of the house of Saul. This some years have elapsed now. And 
His name was Shimei. No relation to me, by the way. The son of Gera. He was coming out, cursing as he came. He also threw stones at David and all the servants of King David. This guy's chucking rocks at King David. You know how dangerous that is to throw rocks at a king? Can you imagine? David was a warrior, man. Killed giants. His men, some of them are mighty men, you know, who've killed giants. Not like King Saul and his clan who didn't kill any giants. He also threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and all the warriors were on the right and on his left. I mean, it's humiliating too. Verse 7. This is what Shimei said when he cursed. Go away, go away, you man of bloodshed and worthless man. Wow. The Lord has brought back upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul. Remember this since had happened, the insurrection of Absalom. A lot of bloodshed. There'd be bloodshed in his own house as well. In whose place you were, have become king. And the Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. And behold, you are caught in your own evil. For you are a man of bloodshed. Wow. I think David's like, no, that's not what's going on here. Look at verse 9. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, uh, Zariah, said to him, or said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord and king? The king, now let me go over and cut his, off his head. <laughs> wow. Let's go cut that guy's head off, David. And he could have. But the king said, what business of mine is yours, you sons of Zeruiah? If he curses, and if the Lord told him, curse David, then, should, uh, then who should say, why have you done so? Wow. Then David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my son who came out of my own body seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite? I mean, my own son's trying to kill me. How much more does Benjamin, son of Saul, right? Leave him alone and let him curse. Now, that's interesting. For the Lord, he says it a second time. For if the Lord has told him, wow, perhaps the Lord will look on my misery and return good to me. Wow. Instead of his cursing this day. Now, we don't know. This is David's perspective of what's going on. We don't know that the Holy Spirit's saying this is exactly what's going on here. This is his perspective. It seems from the narrative in Scripture, though, that this God is allowing this in his providence, right, to discipline David. So David and his men went on the road, and Shimei kept going on the hillside close beside him. And as he went, he cursed and threw stones and dirt at him. Wow. Now, he's close enough to throw dirt on him. Dirt doesn't go very far when you throw it. Have you ever thrown dirt? Don't throw it in the wind, Okay. Remember that from a little kid. I just seem to have some kind of memory that doesn't work. Uh, and the king and all the people who were with him arrived exhausted, and he refreshed himself there. Now that this story is amazing to me, because David recognizes that he deserves worse than that. Amen. Do you understand that? Anything you go through, everything you go through that's a hardship is not discipline. In fact, oftentimes it's not. Sometimes it may be discipline. Sometimes it is discipline. But if you think it's discipline, the best course of action is say, Lord, help me to be humble through this. Help me not to retaliate. Help me not to return evil for evil. You've allowed this in my life. Help me to 
have a course of action that is righteous and godly. Amen? So look at how David responded. Go to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And look at how he responded to the Lord's discipline and how he looked at it. I just love this. Psalm 119. Go ahead and go to verse uh, 67. Look what he writes. Psalm 119. It's a big psalm. Behold, I was afflicted. Behold, uh, I was afflicted. I went astray. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. So before I was afflicted, I went astray. Then what? But now I keep your word. I went astray. But now I keep your word. In other words, if he was not afflicted, he would have what? Continued to go astray. Look at verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may what? Learn your statutes. He's recognizing what Shimei is doing. Hey, you know what? God's going to help me keep his word through this. Amen? Because I might get high and mighty again and do something stupid. Look at verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. That's the perspective we need to have. And then let's close with Psalm 51. Let's go to Psalm 51. And I love this. I mean, I could show you a place in Psalms where it looks like David even got of a neural disease. Not saying from Bathsheba, but maybe as a consequence of that. Well, no, she would have to have it. Every venereal disease started from somebody that didn't have it. You realize that, right? So God could do that. So oh, that person's not infected. Well, God brings all kinds of judgments. Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, David. This is his prayer of repentance that he has with the Lord when he, after he'd committed murder and adultery. And in sin, my mother conceived me. Verse 6. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part of your, in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop. Remember, hyssop was what went to the cross and to, to Christ and brought back blood from Christ's mouth to the people. Hyssop was what was used to put on the blood, the doorposts, so the death angel would pass the, the blood of the lambs that, that typified Jesus. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. He'd gone through some physical ailment for sure. We don't know if his bones were literally broken. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Some say that David lost his salvation at that point, but why would he say, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me if the Holy Spirit had already been taken from him? Okay? So he's concerned about that, but he's repenting. Amen? So he, I don't believe that. He, I believe God was disciplining him. He was a child of God still, but he needed not harden his heart, and he didn't. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. But he does need the joy of his salvation to be restored because he's just depressed now. And by the way, sometimes, oftentimes, depression is a consequence of sin. And Cain, why is your countenance fallen? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? So as long as Cain was meditating upon sin, he's going to be depressed. And millions of people in America are depressed right now because not that depression always comes from sin. Look at Job. He was, got some times of deep depression, but it wasn't a result of his sin, right? But it can be at times. 
And what people do, they take Xanax, they take all kinds of other things, and they mask what really needs to happen, which is repentance. Not saying if you're taking something because you have some kind of condition, you know, just make sure that you're not masking rebellion against God. Amen? Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, that's Uriah, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifice of God, the sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You know what God wants if you've been in sin? A broken and contrite heart. He wants you to recognize that's rebellion. And quit making excuses and looking at other people's sins. What's amazing, like he was with like that guy that, you know, the parable, the guy who just, you know, killed that other guy's lamb, the rich guy that took the poor guy's lamb. Oh, David's like, I can't believe it. Isn't it amazing? The sins that we'll excuse in ourselves will condemn in others, even though our sin could even be greater and we'll be blind to it. That's the danger. That's the danger. David was blind to the, his sin and how depraved he'd become and still pointed at others. God wants us to look at our own hearts. Amen? He says, who are you to judge another man's servant? We're supposed to judge ourselves, examine ourselves, see if we're in the faith. Amen? If there's sin in your heart right now and you're holding on to something, maybe you're contemplating committing adultery. Maybe you're looking at porno magazines or I guess it's the internet right now. That people, Whatever you're doing, maybe you're involved in some other kind of sin. Maybe it's just pride and arrogance. You think you're better than everybody else or holier than thou and, and you have an air about you where you don't care for other people. Or, you know, you have murderous thoughts, you know, you, you, but you're not killing anybody, but you just hate people. Jesus says if you call another person fool, you're in danger of hellfire. Talking to his disciples. The, the lost are already going to hell. Right? Tell, he's warning them, you know, you're in danger of hellfire. Call them raka, empty-headed, full. The Bible says to be angry and sin not, right? So whether it's anger, whether it's lust, whether it's pride, whatever it is, we apply this to our lives by being humble and saying, man, I, just, I don't deserve anything. I deserve death. Thank you, God, for having mercy on me. Thank you for sending your son to die for me. David repents before Jesus dies. We have all the more reason. The kindness of God leads us to repentance, knowing the gospel far more clearly than people did before the cross. So I want to encourage you. How do you apply this? First, don't sin. Don't sin. Don't sin. Well, how do you expect me not to sin at all? Well, 1 John 2 says, I write these things that you don't sin. Now, no one's going to be perfect absolutely agree. We don't teach sinless perfectionism here. But that's what you aim for, right? If you're a batter, and you say, well, and you have an attitude, well, yeah, everybody gets strikeouts before you go play. Yeah, if I get a, uh, everybody strikes out. <laughs> no, you go up to hit the ball, even though you're not going to hit a thousand percent, right? They go by a thousand, right? You do your best every time because you're seeking to aim for perfection. Amen? He says, I write these things that you don't sin, but if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, amen? He says he's a propitiation or payment not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Some say, oh, that just, whole world just means other Christians, the elect in other countries. Wow, David, that must have been so surprising to John's audience. Oh, he died for other Christians too? 
<laughs> we already know that. He's saying not only the payment for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. A little bit later, he says in 1 John, he's not only the payment, or, uh, he talked about Satan's the God of this world, but not only, or, you know, he talks about he's the God of this world, right, in uh, 1 John 4.4. 4. But he says in 1 John 5.19, we know that we are of God, but the whole world is under the power of the evil one. So when he says, he's a propitiation not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world, he's talking about all those who are under the power of the evil one. Everyone. That means you don't have to doubt whether Jesus loves you. Amen. He died for you. He says he tasted death for everyone. So I want to encourage you right now. If you've been in sin, if you've sinned at all, and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you could be saved. You simply need to recognize that you're a sinner, that you're in huge trouble, that you're separated from God, you're on your way to hell. He loves you so much he gave his son to die for you. I'm sorry, I'm direct, because I believe that's what God wants me to be. He's direct with me. He's direct with us. Just read his word, right? And you know what? Because you need to understand clearly that you're in dire straits, man. You're doomed without Jesus because you are acting as though you're your own little God and you're thumbing your, in your heart because God's created you to respond to him. But if you don't respond to him, you're in rebellion. You need to repent. But if you repent and put your faith in Jesus, the Bible says you'll pass from death to life and that those who believe will not come into condemnation. What a beautiful promise. Amen. So turn to Jesus now. And for those of you who have backslidden, who have fallen away, James 5, 19 and 20 says, Brethren, if any of you turn from the truth and one converts you back, he'll save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. Your sins can be forgiven. He says if you return to him, he will abundantly pardon. Not just pardon, abundantly pardon you. He'll forgive you if you return back to him. Amen. So if you're not a Christian, man, this is the day, man. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't leave here lost. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. There's a guy that went into assembly and he just says, Jesus said, he just lifted up his voice and cried out to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he left right with God. In your heart, cry out to him right now and you'll leave right with God. Just begin to follow Jesus and put your trust in him right now for what he's done for you on the cross. And if you're a brother or sister in the Lord, just return to the Lord. Get right. Don't make things worse. Amen. Get right with him. Can we all please stand? The Bible says to stand in awe of him over and over again. And let's stand off the Lord and what he's done as we pass out the cup and the bread.